Welcome to Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. And we have a really excellent guest today, Kevin Berry. We do. We're super excited that Kevin's um, come on to talk to us. He's an Irish writer. He's published two collections of short stories, and his first novel, City of Bohane, was shortlisted for the 2013 International Impact Dublin Literary Award. Um, and we're going to be talking to him today about his second novel, which is the weird and wonderful and trippy Beetlebone, published last year and winner of the Goldsmiths Prize for Experimental Fiction. And it's, it's such a fantastic book. It is fantastic. We both loved it. In Beetlebone, a fictional John Lennon spends most of the book trying to get to a tiny island that he bought in Clue Bay off the west coast of Ireland. I'm trying. <laughs> I don't know why I just did that in a faux Irish accent. Uh, inspired by his trip, today's theme is Down the Rabbit Hole, about all those literary escapes to the ends of the earth and to the center of the mind. Dun, dun, dun. Trips, generally, mm-hmm. right? Yep, double meaning there. Well done, Kevin. Yep. Mm-hmm. We'll be lighting out for the territory with Huck Finn and going underground with the Invisible Man. So stay tuned for our interview with Kevin, our discussion of the theme, and as always, some book recommendations. But first, here is our interview with Kevin Barry. Kevin Barry, thanks so much for coming on Literary Friction today. We've asked you to start with a reading, so could you set it up a bit and then start? Okay. Um, A man called John from Liverpool has just arrived in the west of Ireland and he's about to spend 200-odd pages trying to find his little island out there. He sets out for the place as an animal might, as though on some fated migration... There is nothing rational about it, nor even entirely sane, and this is the great attraction. He's been travelling half the night east, and nobody has seen him. If you keep your eyes down, they can't see you. Across the strung-out skies, and through the eerie airports, and now he sits in the back of the old Mercedes. His brain feels like a city centre, and there is a strange tingling in the bones of his monkey feet, Fuck it, he will deal with it. The road unfurls as a black tongue and laps at the night. There's something monkeyish, isn't there, about his feet. Also, his gums are bleeding, but he won't worry about that now. He'll worry about it in a bit, save one for later. Trees and fields pass by in the grainy night. Monkeys on the fucking brain lately, as a matter of fact. Anxiety. He hears a blue yonderly note from somewhere. Perhaps it's from within... Now the driver's sombre eyes show up in the rear view. It's arranged, he says, there should be no bother whatsoever, but we could be talking an hour yet to the hotel out there. Driver has a very smooth timbre, deep and trustworthy, like a newscaster. The bass note and brown velvet of his voice are the corduroy of it. The great, chunky old murk cuts the air, quiet as money as they move. John is tired, but not for sleeping. No fucking pressmen, he says, and no fucking photogs. In the near dark, there is the sense of trees and fields and hills combining. The way you can feel a world form around you on a lucky night in the springtime. He rolls the window an inch. He takes a lungful of cool starlight for a straightener. Blue and gases. That's lovely. He is tired as fuck, but he cannot get his head down. It's the Maytime. The air is thick with and tastes of it, and he's all stirred up again. Where the fuck are we, driver? It would be very hard to say. Thank you. I think about halfway through that, I thought maybe we should just let him read for the next half hour. I know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Okay. Um, you you introduced that by saying it's about a man named. John. Um, and I started reading this book basically having read the back cover and mm-hmm. knowing nothing else about okay. it. And I have to admit, and I guess this is a spoiler, but I don't think we can really do the interview, uh, that I didn't know it was about John Lennon. And I didn't... The fact that Beetlebone was in the title, Carrie, didn't... I know. It's really, <laughs> emba- it's really embarrassing. I and I didn't... No but it's amazing how many people don't click that it's about a beetle and they see beetle in the title and I, they don't click. I didn't click. I didn't click when I found uh, out he was from Liverpool. I right. didn't click when... Uh, nothing clicked until okay. you actually that well the author comes in and yeah. says and explains this it is all, John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so was that intentional on your point? Did you want to keep it sort of vague and opaque? I kind of yeah because I mean it's it's um, 
even though it wears kind of um the clothes of realism in places it 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 it, it very quickly doffs those and it's it, it's a very kind of um surreal um madcap story in some ways and then it goes quite dark but it's not realism you know it, it hoves away from that very quickly and i didn't want the real world to intrude too much into this made up one um so i wanted to keep it a little bit vague and i i knew it would come clearer as the book went on who we're, who we're dealing with or who we purport to be dealing with in the story well i i also didn't know it was about john lennon okay <laughs> and um one of the things that i enjoyed about it and possibly it gave me even more freedom to enjoy it I obviously grew up listening to the Beatles, but I've never been that interested in John Lennon as a figure. Mm. And he's he's not a presence in my unconscious at all. Yeah. Um, just being of diff different generations, I think. So it gave that, there was a lot of space, once I realized who it was, for it to grow. And I now have a very different view of John Lennon yeah. <laughs> from the book, but it's, it's wonderful. But do you think that it's, do, have you noticed it, it being received by people of different ages? Sure, I think there's definitely way? a generational kind of difference there. I think for a certain generation um, of 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 slightly older people, like 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 myself, I mean, it's it's r those readers would come to the book with a certain preconception of what he should sound like and would have very much have an idea of his voice um, in their heads before they begin, um, which made it a very difficult book for me, you know, because it's difficult when they're from page one they want to the character to sound like they think he should sound um but i have noticed that with younger readers yeah that they, they don't have any preconceptions that they, they know who he is of course um and they know the beatles and they can hum beetle tunes but um they wouldn't have so much of the kind of furniture of his life and his events to begin with in in, in their minds and they wouldn't have the tone of voice which i'm guessing from kind of people from 40-ish up would very much have grown up with John Lennon being a very, very um, pervasive figure in the culture, and they would have an idea of what he should kind of sound like. You have spoken um, in various places and an article in The Guardian about how you tried very hard to get his voice right. Um, and you said to try and get his voice on the page of Beetlebone was difficult because the reader brings an expectation of what he should sound like, but also because this voice is so capricious. Um, which is kind of what you just said there. But mm. can you talk a bit about how you eventually arrived at the voice and what kind of work you did to get it on the page? Yeah, I mean, it, it was... I, I do very little kind of traditional research amongst books ever. Um, but I did watch kind of lots of YouTube. And there are lots of kind of early 70s US talk show interviews with him on the Dick Cavett show. And what's very interesting, I would literally transcribe his lines, what he's saying. And what's very interesting is that he switches tone so quickly. Um, he can go from very f charming and funny and light and kind of fluffy to being very spiky and thorny and kind of paranoid inside the beat of a sentence. Um, and that's very hard to get on, on the page. And it just took kind of endless drafts, really. Um, I was kind of cleaning out my shed last summer outside the house in County Sligo where I wrote most of the book, where I finished it. And I was kind of hosing the blood off the walls you know after after the long struggle and counting up the rough drafts um and it's a short novel it's about fifty thousand words but i think i probably wrote something like four hundred thousand words for it um a hugely uneconomical working practice where i just go endlessly down onto the page just kind of spew endless streams of, of 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 dialogue and talk and events onto the page and then cut because i like to edit that's when i'm having fun when i'm cutting back um and to use probably quite a quite a tired analogy it's like this sculptor has to give herself a block of stone before she can start finding the shape within it and that's kind of my practice with a novel i think really is to write fucking loads and then start cutting at it and see what i can find in there and see what shape is in there and there is always a more elegant shape that you can find once you start going in there yeah can you talk a little bit more about that process of, of cutting what what are you looking for how do you find it i'm just looking and I, with each successive draft of the book i was getting just enough here and there where i thought yeah that almost sounds like i could get away with it being john lennon in the middle of my novel um and it is, you know, an audacious thing to try and take not just any old iconic figure, but such an iconic figure and to plonk him down in the middle of one of your nutty West of Ireland stories. Um, but it, it was strange, actually. It's when I made him part of a double act, when I gave him a sidekick in the novel and this driver who we met very briefly there, whose name is Cornelius, when he started talking a lot and wouldn't shut up, 
when it was a double act it sort of came to life on the desk for me it kind of stood up you know um when i made him part of this this tag team drifting around county mayo in a rusty old van trying to get to a little island out in somewhere lost in the mist and the mark so it was yeah when they started when they started talking it was um it was suddenly kind of alive on the desk in front of me and speaking of Cornelius, he made me think of um, Charon and being on the River Styx because sure, he's this yeah. kind of, seems like quite a mythical figure. He's a kind of a spirit guy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh. Was that, because he has such a strong voice, Cornelius mm. as well, um, was that a powerful initial driving voice for you? Yeah, he's a kind of a character who I, I love in novels. Um, I love Saul Bellow. And Saul Bellow always talked about a character he'd bring into his novel called the reality instructor. This was the guy or the girl who would come along and tell the main character, this is how you do it. This is how you get through life. And, and Cornelius is kind of John's reality instructor. But it's a very strange kind of reality he's instructing in and dealing with. Um, but yeah, I, I just started to have fun when it was the pair of them um, rattling around. And I mean, this story, it's very much about the place that it's set in. Um, everything I write, whether it's a play script or a short story or a novel, it, it almost always begins with the place. And my bicycle quite literally drew me out to Beetlebone because I go cycling out around Clue Bay where it's set um, in the what passes for an Irish summer, cycling through the rain and the mist. And I was going out there for six or seven years, looking down on Clue Bay, all these tiny islands down there. And knowing, having the strange little cultural factoid in my head that John Lennon used to actually own one of those. And kind of just going, I wonder which one it was. And this kind of repeating. But So that brought me to the novel. But also it was the feeling of the place. And it's a very beautiful place. Um, but it also has kind of a haunted, eerie feeling in some mysterious ways. And I think as a writer, what I'm trying to do often is tune into the kind of um, trapped feelings or vibrations that particular places give off. I know this makes me sound like an awful hippie, uh, but that's what I am. Um, and just try and make drama and make fiction out of that. Do you think that it was easier for you to understand John Lennon by bringing him to your turf Yeah. in uh, some sense? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's what what gives me the right to, 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 to take a real person and, and to put him in my fiction, I guess, is the fact that he did actually buy a little island in my terrain or on my turf if you like so that's kind of stepping into my territory um and he did late in his life um he only visited the island during a island twice ever for about an hour each time in actuality but i've imagined in beetlebone a third visit in 1978 but towards the end of his actual life he did talk about renewing the planning permission with mayo county council for durinish island and building a house out there and just the very fact of john lennon having dealings with mayo county council wouldn't let me alone in my head and I knew I had to do something with that you know um, but he was also a, a, a proponent of primal scream therapy um, and I imagined him going to the island to scream so of course I had to go totally method actor on it and I had to go to the island and I had to do some screaming while I was out there and how was it I'm right as rain since <laughs> it, all, it, all, it all worked out beautifully Talking look at me I'm serene <laughs> I mean, Kevin, for the record, is very, very serene. Very calm, <laughs> almost floating around her. <laughs> um, yeah, talking about place and the importance of it and bringing up the primal screen stuff, there's such a primal throb to the piece, I found, you know, that comes through the land, as you said, and the kind of caves and these wet, um, slightly fetid places. Um, and one of the things that you do very sort of deftly is fold different timescapes together and this idea of the time slip that comes up. I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that because I find it really engaging. Yeah, there's, um, there was an Irish philosopher called John Moriarty, um, passed away a few years ago. He's a really great guy, real space cadet. Um, and he would talk always about happy fields and sad fields in the west of Ireland. Say you could walk through a field and suddenly you'd have this glow of happiness on you but it wouldn't be yours at all it could have been in the field for hundreds of years because of something that happened there and I've always subscribed to this theory as well as I drift around on my bicycle in the west of Ireland um, every town is a different mood every little cliff top is a different mood or feeling um, sometimes it's happy and sometimes it's melancholy um, and this area around Clue Bay as I was saying uh, as I drifted around on my bicycle I was getting kind of an eerie haunted kind of atmosphere off it 
about whatever went on there so so i i needed john to tune into that um in the book as well and i thought you know i wanted the book to be nuts essentially um because I, it took about four years but about a year in i was starting to get the voice for him and i thought yeah this is pretty good and then i thought i could go and do the standard kind of biopic now you know which would be a very attractive commercial proposition but i thought i couldn't imagine doing anything worse than writing a fucking safe novel about John Lennon I thought it has to be as nutty and as wild as its nutty and wild subject was um, to, to, to be any good and to, and to do him any justice you know um, so I wanted to let it drift off to strange places yeah it is I mean it is pretty nutty I didn't I, d- I said I, I went into <laughs> it not knowing what to expect and it certainly wasn't what I expected and what I could have even dreamed of which <laughs> I, I appreciated all the more um, and you you were awarded the uh, Goldsmiths Prize uh, last year, I believe, mm. which um, their mission statement is, let's see, I've written this down. Um, it, it awards fiction, which opens up new possibilities for the novel. Um, in other words, what somebody might call experimental. Mm. Do you like to think of your fiction in that way? Or um, is it is that too reductive? In I don't know. I, I, I write lots of, I kind of... I don't think I have a particular style, really, as a writer. And I mean, even in my collections of short stories, you find there's loads of different styles in those books. I tend to leave the story, dictate the style, and go at it kind of that way. Um, I mean, with Beetlebone, I, I, I tried everything. I was trying first person, second person, third person, past tense, present tense, future tense. And eventually, I just thought, I'll fuck them all in. And I'll do it all <laughs> into one book. And there's little play scripts in there, and there's an essay in there. Um, and I just thought, you know, if I make it all about trying to get to an island, it'll hang together. You know, if that line runs through it, if that thread is strung through the whole lot, it will it will hold together and the reader will go with me anywhere. Because um, we all kind of know what it means somehow to f- have, have a place that you want to get to in your life, whether it's a real place or, or a metaphorical place or just kind of a place within you, maybe. Um, and... and, and yeah, I've lost I've lost the thread now. But yeah, getting getting to an island, um, I thought I can get away with anything as long as I just keep that beat going throughout it. Well, on the subject of, of fucking it all and throwing it all in together, there's one line that really stood out for me and um, it's where you say, whatever you're most scared of surfacing in your work mm. is surely around the corner or something. Yeah. Um, and that rang so true. <laughs> and I wondered if there was a particular element of the book that you would have been scared of and sure. have come to terms with. Um, it's, 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 I hope it's a book that's not afraid of going to sentimental places. Um, it is, ultimately, it's one of the most maligned genres of all. It's a piece of fan fiction. Um, and it's written about someone who I wish was still around. Um, but it's, yeah, I think when you're a younger writer and an emerging writer and you're reading back over what you've written, you very often come to these really embarrassing places that make you recoil in horror from the page. And, of course, you immediately cut them. And now I'm when I come to one of those places, when I read back over my work, I'm inclined to concentrate on it um, and cut everything else except the embarrassing stuff. Because often the embarrassing stuff, it's merely feeling mm. coming into the work. It's the real stuff. And it's 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 kind of honest stuff, and it was um, yeah. And in, in Beetlebone, I want I I wanted to allow it to go into kind of sentimental places. Um, he was a brilliant artist and a very sentimental one. If you listen to Beatles songs, it comes out of a very sentimental musical tradition, um, fed by Irish music and music hall kind of tradition in the, in in the north of England as well. So, I wanted to be unafraid to kind of allow it into these places, I guess. And I think at one point you say sentimentality is something you both love and fear as a writer. Sure, yeah, and yeah. Sort of walking that middle line must yeah, be terrifying. Yeah, I've been just on the cusp of it, you know, because where does feeling and emotion tiptoe into sentimentality and ha- can you keep it just in check? Um, don't know if I always manage it in the book, <laughs> but I, ho- I hope so. Uh, let's get back to voice because that is a, is a very important central thing in this novel um it's a novel that i think very concerned with voice you have play scripts you have lots of dialogue um at the center is this voice of lennon um and you've talked in the past about how important you think voice is um and maybe even more so today so can you expand on that yeah um i mean writing fiction or drama it has a lot in in common with with 
the motions of madness, if you can put it like that. You know, it's, it's, it's about hearing voices and getting voices down right on the page. And it's been very interesting actually dealing with the voices in this novel and Beetlebone. It started to push me in other directions and I'm more inclined now to, 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 to be, since I finished the novel, I've been working on plays almost exclusively. Um, and it's really nice to have a project that pushes you into other directions, you know, and I've also become very interested in writing essays because there's an essay is kind of the heart of, of, of the novel. Um, so yeah, but voices, I always thought my work started with a voice initially and I, after my first story collection came out and I started to do readings and literary events and you're asked, you know, where does the work come from? I developed a very kind of eloquent answer about kind of Hiberno-English and found dialogue and all this. And it sounded very convincing and I caught myself delivering it one day, some event, and I just thought this is bollocks really, you know? Um, because I discovered actually it's always the place. That's the initial thing with me. The voices come second. Um, it's, it's the geographic location and the feeling there that's the initial kind of throb that m makes me go oh I want to write something here and then I start to get the voices subsequently to that um, it, w it was nice to play with north of England and west of Ireland voices um, up against each other because they are quite cousinly um, in some ways you know um, I lived in Liverpool myself for two years in the kind of mid zeros um, and actually that was one of the things that probably gave me the confidence to to try this um, novel. I thought, yeah, I, c I can do, I can do a Liverpool accent. Um, I don't know if I would have tried it if I hadn't spent that time there. But uh, and Cornelius then has a, is kind of a tricky character. He is sometimes in his speech he's quite grand and quite poetical, and then he can be very blunt and very profane. He's not a million miles from my voice sometimes. Um, so it was just nice to to put each kind of. Your language is your way of presenting a kind of an affront to the world, I think. And um, they have very various ways of doing it in the book, John and Cornelius, and putting them side by side was, was great fun. And, and those dialogues, long dialogues that often go on for pages between John and Cornelius are the kind of motors, I think, of the book that it rolls along on. And they read very light and easily, I think, but they're, they were the hardest work. They will go through 80 and 90 and 100 drafts you know, to get those right. And I act them all out and I, I do the voices. Um, I'm kind of a frustrated actor, essentially, at heart. Um, and, and, and I try to get that down. But what seems effortless and light on the page in a good novel has always taken vast amounts of hard, rock-breaking work to get there. You know, I think that's, that's inevitable. I wanted to ask you, actually, about performance because when I finished it and I read it, in a very concentrated way. Um, I felt like I'd been to the theatre, you know? Mm. It, it does feel like a play. Could you imagine it being performed ever? Yeah, I, I, I sure, I'm sure I could. Um, but I actually, when my first book of stories came out in 2007, um, and I started to do readings and so forth, it became apparent to me very quickly that my stuff works well aloud and that people like to hear it. Um, uh, so I've, I've been making short films the last few years and writing longer film scripts. And and I'm very involved now with 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 writing for the stage. I've had a couple of sh plays on in Ireland, and I've three plays on the desk at the moment. And it's just a it's a, it's a, it's a lovely thing because it um compared to writing prose fiction, it it gets you out of the house, and and you have <laughs> colleagues for a while, you know. So on a r purely pragmatic level, it's 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 a really nice change. Um, it's kind of a very melancholy thing as well to put a play on because when it finishes, it's finished, and and uh, that whole lovely world that came together and these great friends you made, it suddenly dissipates and there's nothing left, you know, but it's, um, but yeah, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy the process of it. I've done some acting myself for scripts for the radio, for monologues and stuff, but I have a real, real regard for stage actors and sympathy for them. It's a tough old life. They don't always get paid well. They're often staying in provincial B&Bs for weeks on end and they do it because they have to do it. They're really, you know, they need to do it. They're truly vocational and it's, um, I have a great desire to write good stuff for them and give them good lines. You don't mind relinquishing your words? No, I don't. I think some book writers can't make the transition. I think I think you have to be prepared to, to kind of hang your ego with your coat at the door of the rehearsal room because the actors will do very strange things that you weren't expecting with the lines and bring it into completely new places that maybe aren't good and maybe are amazing and are really elevated, but you have to be prepared to, to see where it goes, you know? 
speaking of voice and dialogue, um, one of the things I really loved about this book was the way you used profanity, um, mm. especially the word fuck, actually, okay. uh, which is sort of, uh, you might have noticed from the reading, anyone listening, that it's, it's sort of littered throughout uh, John's dialogue, especially. Or yeah. maybe I'm just extra sensitive. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> it felt like a really... I loved the... It, it, it almost felt like a beat in the background of his dialogue. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, God, swearing and Irish people, you know. Um, <laughs> we do a lot of it. And the reason is is that we do it so well. You know, we're really good at swearing. The Spanish are possibly better. The Spanish are magnificently profane people, <laughs> fantastic swearers. But Irish people do it well. And it is almost used as punctuation um, in Irish speech sometimes, especially in the west of Ireland. Um, dog rough. Um, and yeah, I, 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 it's, it, it seemed right for him. Uh, if you do look at old clips on YouTube and stuff when he's at his home studio in the se early 70s, he does seem quite a profane um, gentleman. So I don't think it's, um, I think it's probably not too far off the, off the mark in that regard. But yeah, it's, it's, it's um, you know, it depends on the character as well. I, I've, 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 I've just written a, a kind of a, a play, a three-hander with, two characters in it and, and they don't say a single swear word all the way through because it just wasn't right for them um, but for John and for Cornelius yeah the air was blue a lot of the time <laughs> I guess as, as we went through the story Cornelius deploys the word cunt with a complete brilliance with relish yeah, absolute I think relish so, yeah. but also with warmth I think so yeah <laughs> it, it shouldn't be a cold thing I don't know where this conversation is now going. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's a really warm book and it's a funny book too. Um, oh, it's a, yeah. It, I mean, I think that's important to say. And really, everything I write, I would consider to be in the realm of of comedy. Um, I think it's the truest mode to our human experience. It's how we get through. Um, is is. On the, you know, if you don't laugh, you'll cry kind of a level. A lot of my work um, exists on. But I also like to make the readers laugh because that makes them vulnerable to you as, as, as a writer. When they're laughing, it's a physical reaction and they become very open and warm to what's going on. And then you can take them anywhere. And then you can really twist a knife and take them to very dark places when they're not expecting it. And they're very, because they're so open from the laughter and the constant low chuckling, all the way through then they're suddenly you know where, where are we going now and and the book does go to quite quite dark places as well especially when he's in this kind of commune with the remnants of a of a primal screaming cult and they have this confrontational therapy session where they scream the vilest abuse at him and at each other and god some of the early drafts of that like i was i was <laughs> I wasn't even able for them myself, you know, but uh, that's a very, <laughs> very um, watered down version of what I had in, in some of the earlier drafts. But it was, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's. Um, it that scene is funny, too, though. I mean, I th yeah, I think so. It's I, th so I, I think so. Yeah. I, um, and it's great. That stuff went on all the time as well in the West of Ireland. It, like, it's weird when the West of Ireland shows up in, in Irish literature. Traditionally, it'll be about the farm or about the small town, or about that kind of world. But when I was growing up there in the 70s and 80s, it was also um, full of freaks, you know? It was the end of the hippie trail, and all the German hippies came, and French hippies, and English hippies, and Irish hippies, and there were screaming communes, and there were polyamorous communes, and all nutty stuff was going on, and it really improved the place, you know? <laughs> it took it from being a monoethnic kind of Catholic kind of honky world and really transformed it and a lot of the really cool things you have now in the west of ireland started with the freaks coming in in the 70s and it was really interesting to find out that john lennon actually had a very important role in that because he gave his island to a, a group called the diggers for a while and that was kind of the first organized commune a free love commune in the west of ireland so it was really cool to find that he, he had a, a key part to play in that process of opening the place up i think yeah, it sort of exists like a mad subconscious space. Yeah, in the book. and it's still and it's it it still Mythical. is as it still is as well. You know, um, I love when you cross the Shannon River, um, coming from Dublin, and you go through the Midlands, and you cross the Shannon, and you're into the West. I settle and I calm down, and I feel back at last in 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 civilization. Um, it's 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 uh, yeah, it's very very important for me. Um, 
to be out there and, and to feed off it and, 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 and to do, do a lot of my work based there. Do you think that's specifically about that particular landscape or do you think that's more a universal quality of yeah. any landscape that you grow up in and Sh- know yeah, well? Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 it's very, very um, interesting question actually about, about places and the way some will immediately offer themselves to your work and some just won't at all. Um, I lived two years in Liverpool and I've written lots of stories set there and it's been a big influence on this novel. Um, I lived much longer in Edinburgh, about four years, and I've never had any urge or temptation. And I loved it while I was there, but I've never had any urge or temptation to use it at all as a setting. I can't find a way in, you know, to the language there. Um, I, I, I go to Spain a lot in, in the winter, in January and February. Um, County Sligo is just too miserable and grey-skied and fucking bleak. And I take off for a few weeks or a few months to the south of Spain. Um, and I've been gone for about 15 or 16 years now. And every year I've tried to write a story set in Spain and it's never worked out until this year. I kind of got one and it was an Irish guy down there (laughs) in the story. (laughs) But uh, at last it started to kind of, you know, filter through. I thought its colors were kind of coming through properly, but it's um, it takes a long while, you know, and it takes patience and the events and emotions and places in your own life can take ages to come into your fiction. I often think with me it's about 11 years, 11 and a half years before the events of my life have sufficiently embittered me that they need to come out in the fiction in some way, you know. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's weird though and unpredictable. It's funny that you mentioned Spain because I think that there's some interesting parallels between the Spanish and the Irish beyond being oh good yeah. at swearing, you know. Yeah, it's like yeah that kind of unconscious it element again and it feel it, it's weird especially when i go to andalusia when i go to the south of spain it feels very familiar and it reminds me of ireland growing up there in the 1970s um a lot of it is down to i guess the catholic iconography that you see all around you mm. and spend as you're surrounded by and little nuns <laughs> around the streets everywhere which you don't really see in ireland so much anymore um, but you still do in spain um yeah and and, and it's weird. there's a long tradition as well of irish writers being drawn to spain and a lot of it is pragmatic just to get out from under the under the rain cloud. Um, but the, no, there's something definitely. One of, one, of, one of the more ambitious of the plays on my desk at the moment is, is set in, 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 in the port of Algeciras, which is a really strange, paranoid Spanish city going over to Tangier. So it's a play called Night Boat to Tangier, um, which is a great title if it hasn't got anything else yet, but it has a great title. So look out for that one. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Kevin, for coming in today. We've really enjoyed it. Oh, it was fun, guys. Thanks and, a lot. And uh, everyone should read Beetlebone. I can, I can say that both Octavia and I they should. loved it. I also can't wait for the play, so hurry up. <laughs> Great, okay. Thank you. So that was our interview with Kevin Barry, the author of Beetlebone, and uh, some other short stories and another novel as well. But today, inspired by Beetlebone, we are going to be talking about escapes in literature. Um, in Beetlebone, as as you heard, John Lennon is trying to get to this little island and keeps being frustrated at every turn. So let's start by talking about why is the escape such a common literary motif? As soon as I started thinking about this show, I, I just, th- you know, the, the books are endless, really, of people escaping somewhere. Yeah, you're, you're right. <clears throat> I think it's because a narrative is a journey anyway. Um, and if you start with the point of escape, you've got a structure set up for you already, right? A character is already leaving something in order to go somewhere else. Um, but I think also it's because escapism and the desire to escape is such a common human experience, right? No matter how wonderful life is or how dark it is, I think every person has that experience of suddenly going, oh my God, I just want to get away (laughs) and go somewhere else and have adventures. And again, escape has the notion of an adventure in it because Mm. it's kind of illicit. Um, You know, you're you're sneaking away from something and, and turning your back on responsibility. And escape is both internal and external, and usually at the same time. So if you're escaping and going somewhere else, you're probably on some sort of internal journey as well. And, you know, the novel takes many forms, and 
I try not to be reductive about it, but usually it's about people changing and what better way to change than go on some sort of journey. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have, of course, the Odyssey, um, which is kind of the perfect archetype and original, well, it's not the original escape story, but you know what I'm trying to say, this kind of epic journey. Yeah, um, although he's not escaping. I, th I thought of that too. And true. then I was like, he's actually trying to get home, which is <laughs> kind of the opposite of escaping, but let's just encompass but it into this theme. There are escapes in the process, like when he has to escape Cersei and, you know. Yeah, let's go with we it. We can crowbar <laughs> it back around, but, babe. <laughs> but you're right, it is the sort of urtext. Um, of the escape of, uh, you know, most books in the English language, you can say, kind of fall into the template. And there are many novels written with a direct reference to um, the Odyssey, for instance, Ulysses, of course. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think Beetlebone is, I think Kevin would say, if we'd asked him, he'd probably say the Odyssey is in there because yeah. it's about these series of adventures in which somebody's trying to get somewhere. Um, and that forms the, the narrative of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And this thing about, I mean, calling it the show Down the Rabbit Hole, obviously re referencing Alice in Wonderland, which is, again, it was in my mind so much when we were reading Beetlebone because it's another example of a journey that is both external and internal and the whole trippy nature of, of, of the thing. In Beetlebone, again, like the characters that he comes across are a bit like Cheshire Cat and, you know, the um, po dope pope smoking, the dope smoking caterpillar and all of that. Yeah. So what are some other classic escape novels that you thought of when you were preparing for this? Man, the first one was The Count of Monte Cristo, obviously, which is the, the very famous Alexandre Dumas book, which I have to admit I've never read until the very end. Um, but it's this story. It's, it's kind of one of the archetypal escape narratives, I would say, set before the Hundred Days War. Um, Napoleon time about a guy called Edmond Dante who's wrongly, wrongfully imprisoned and then he escapes from jail and then he acquires a fortune and then seeks revenge so it's kind of in some ways it's like the fantasy of escape you know wrongful imprisonment which means that he's therefore righteous in his revenge so in some ways and like I said I haven't read to the end um, so this is, I could be I've only seen the wishbone version so <laughs> <laughs> I have a very skewed <laughs> idea amazing. of what happens in that book but go on well <clears throat> the, the concept that interests me about it is this kind of the way that we legitimize um, bad behavior in some way and in it in the, the notion of escape it kind of holds within itself a sense of something wrongful having happened um, in order for the character to, to need to go. And this this legend in The Count of Monte Cristo where he, you know, he's been wrongfully in prison, but then it's like the balance gets redressed for him because he gets this fortune and, and then he's allowed to kind of seek revenge. Mm -hmm. um, but that, yeah, that was the first, definitely yeah. the strongest. I was thinking about American literature, partially because I read more American literature, but I think there is a really strong history of escape in, and tradition of escape in American novels. Um, you know, I mentioned Huck Finn in the intro. That's sort of the archetypal American novel that many people point to. And, and in that, Huck is literally sort of um, getting away from society. He's going to light up for the territory. He's going into unknown worlds. He's accessing a space that isn't available to him, especially because he takes along the slave and they, they well, that all of that is quite problematic anyway, but there is this sense of an idyllic world that's accessible beyond society and also a place where he can be an individual, which Americans are obsessed with. Totally um, obsessed with. And, and you, I think, for instance, um, in Rabbit Run, Update picks that up. It's this idea, again, of a straight white male <laughs> needing, needing to run away from all the constraints and... Um, burdens of society to find his own individual spirit. Mm. So maybe it's just American white men, but um, <laughs> there are definitely a lot of people escaping in America. And I think it is because of that tradition of uh, manifest destiny and expanding of territories and rugged individualism really comes out in the fiction. Mm, that's, it's a really interesting point. Um, and it made me think where you were talking about the Narnia Chronicles, <coughs> which very different, but the kind of English wartime setup of children who are, the external world is frightening, and so they, they find this world of the, the imagination, you know, through the back of the wardrobe. Um, and that, it's those stories, and I mean, the children's li literature is a thing that we'll, ha we'll have to talk about in a minute, because it's obviously it's a big theme in that. Um, but the, the kind of, the mirror of that door in the back of, all that 
false wall in the back of the wardrobe being like something in your own mind as well is, is, is really potent. And that made me think about The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys, which is all about mental health and escape in, in those kind of more um, esoteric ways, I guess. Um, and for anyone who's not read it, it's a, it's a phenomenal book. It's kind of a prequel to Jane Eyre. Uh, and it's about Bertha Rochester, who Rhys imagines as this white Creole heiress named Antoinette. Um, and she marries this unnamed English husband, but you know, it's Mr. Rochester. And she comes from a family with you know, bad mental health in its blood, basically. But he uh, squashes her and then he takes her from her home and brings her to England and locks her in the attic and she becomes the mad woman in the attic. And this idea of, um, it's like a reverse escape almost. It's an entrapment, but she, this, th her madness gets more and more dominant the more restriction is placed on her by him. And there's a way of thinking of that as, you know, she has to seek escape internally because she becomes imprisoned externally. Yeah, and I think I, I really like that idea. And I think that's probably true for a lot of women in literature is that the escape that they seek has to be mental because of the way that they're restricted by their surroundings. So um, in Charlotte Perkins Gilman's story, The Yellow Wallpaper, um, that's about a descent into madness. And this woman is literally in the room the entire time. Um, and she starts to see women crawling around in the wallpaper. It's very creepy. I've I not read it. It's, it's great. It's, it's, it's a great story. Um, yeah. Or there's Kate Chopin's The Awakening, which was another um, American novel that I had to read, which I actually think is kind of a crap novel <laughs> <laughs> in terms of its just writing. But... Um, makes a very interesting point about death being the only way mm. that this woman can escape. She commits suicide. She walks into the sea. And there have been plenty of women who have done that. Um, Anna Karenina, Madame Bovary, the list, the list goes on. So I think, I think you're right that women especially um, don't have... They can't be Robinson Crusoe or the Count of Monte Cristo. That's it. It's about access, absolutely. And that's why it's such a rich theme because, you know, it is all about finding a way out of a, an injustice, I guess, in some way. And like you say, like the, the, the great white male narrative of American literature, um, it it doesn't make space for women to have those narratives, but I think it's happening or now. Or minorities. Or minorities, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But I do think that there's this, um, there's the space is opening up for minorities of all kinds to have a, a voice in this way as well, because the world is is, ever more accessible, you yes. know? So let's talk about children, which you mentioned briefly with Narnia. Um, and I think you're right. Escape is such a prevalent theme in children's literature. And I think that probably has something to do with, well, children living in a slightly different world than the, the rest of the world. They're not like their parents. Um, they're, they're not burdened, to use that word often, by, by society in the same way they are but also um, children's access to imagination. And escape so often is connected to imagination. And we see many of the children in literature who are escaping, they're, they're escaping into imaginary worlds. So Narnia, for instance, uh, Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, um, there, there are more sort of uh, things like Swallows and Amazons where we're more, we understand that it's an imaginary world that they've created, but it still becomes a magical place through the power of their own imaginations. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a really powerful trope. Absolutely. And I, I also think it's about empowerment because as children, you know, you don't have control over very much in your world. Um, and often when these children, these various characters are escaping, they're escaping into a world where suddenly they're, they're the, the boss of the domain, I guess. Um, and so, you know, in, uh, well, in Alice in Wonderland, of course, um, Peter Pan as well, I was thinking of, and <coughs> lots of them. Pippi, Longs Pippi Longstocking uh, is a brilliant one. Yeah, I love don't, that. She's so cool. Love I her. I mean, such a badass. But Pippi. Pippi. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we Pippi. love Pippi. <laughs> but she, and she wasn't necessarily escaping so much as on an adventure and on a journey. Um, but that. Well, she, but she represented an escape for the kids. Exactly. exactly. She she embodied their need to escape. 
Yeah. Um, and the the way that they wanted to act out in which in the, that they couldn't. Yeah. As I recall. <laughs> but it is <laughs> the, the last thing time again. I read Pippi. <laughs> oh God, too long ago. Yeah. Let's resurrect Pippi. Yeah. But it's that uh, the idea for the the child on their escape and their journey that comes about because of their escape. Suddenly they have responsibility, which is something that the real world doesn't offer them. Mm. Um, but also. Lord of the Flies really hammers that home. Oh my God, super, super hard. <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, you know, we don't have to go too much into this, but books are an escape themselves. So, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I love escaping into books. It's one of the reasons I read. Um, yeah, me too. It's maybe it's, you know, sometimes that, that, that word guilty pleasure sometimes comes into it. The more escapist a book is, the more um, you wonder whether you're reading it just for fun well that's it i mean a realist novel can it can really be an experience of escapism but not necessarily to somewhere nurturing no. <laughs> um i think the idea when, when people talk about escapist literature they tend to be talking about fantasy um or genres that provide a, a world that is comforting and exciting but not necessarily connected to the drudgery and the misery of reality harry potter yeah harry potter i mean seven books of pure escapism um, let's talk about our our favorite escape books. Okay. Octavia. Well, um, I wanted to talk about a play called Jerusalem by Jez Butterworth, which uh, was in my mind the whole time I was reading Beetlebone. Um, and it's... Uh, one of the interesting things about Kevin's book is that it descends into pure dialogue at one point, which is obviously very theatrical. Um, and as he said, he's been writing plays recently. Um, but it was also because of Cornel Cornelius in Kevin's book made me think so much of Johnny Byron, Rooster Byron, who's the, the lead character in, in this play. Um, and the way that the West of Ireland is invoked as this kind of mythical place in Beetlebone, again, made me think of the way that um, English folk culture is represented in Jerusalem. It's a phenomenal play. Um, and Rooster Byron's one of the most charismatic characters I've ever met on stage. Um, it was performed at the Royal Court in 2009, and then it toured and it went to the States because it was super popular. Um, and it's this this character, this eccentric ex-daredevil who's living in a caravan in rural England, and he's this kind of Pied Piper figure. So he provides the escape for everyone else, but he also lives outside of society, and he's being harassed by the local council um, to be evicted, and he's resisting them. And he tells these phenomenal stories about giants and um, you know, madcap adventures, and some of them are true and some of them are fantasy. And um, it's amazing because he... he, he Plies everyone with drugs and booze, and you know he's an anti-hero of kind of the ultimate kind. Um, but it's this it's this kind of wonderfully offbeat, but quite also quite oddly nationalist um, plot. And you come away thinking, I don't know, it conjures a, a different kind of England. And watching it because Mark Rylance gave them performance of a lifetime was pure like pure escapism. Um, if you I ever get the I chance, see that. I know. Well, it will. I'm sure it'll be resurrected. I'm actually sure it's being performed in school sick forms across the country um, because it's so. I mean, it would be a phenomenal text to teach with. Um, but even if you can't see it, read the script because it's beautiful. The language sings um, and it's so evocative. You don't. You know. You don't really need the stage to get what I'm talking about mm. from it. I'd, yeah, I was really upset that I never saw that. I saw and it twice. I kept I'm going to see it, yeah. and I was like thinking about waiting in line on for, for tickets, and I just I never read did. It. Read it, read it. Okay, I will. Um, is Jerusalem a reference to the Blake poem? Yeah. Cool. One hundred percent. Nice one. <laughs> okay, so I am going to recommend a book that works on very many levels, which I'm pleased about. I'm less pleased about the fact that this probably won't be a recommendation for anyone because everyone's heard of it and or read it and or is about to read it, but I'm going to recommend it anyway. It's called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. Um, it won a ton of awards. It was published in 2000. And the reason it works on a number of different levels is that, first of all, it is one of those long, immersive books that I totally escaped into when I read it. But it also works because the theme of the novel is essentially escape. Um, and the reason for that is that it's about this, um, th these two Jewish cousins, Joe and Sammy, who in 1939 New York invent The Escapist, a comic book character inspired by Henry Houdini, who also literally becomes their own escape, um, the escaping from 
lives of poverty, escaping from memories of um, Joe's had to flee from Europe to come over. So escaping from, you know, Hitler's horrible dictatorship and um, and a, a just world where everything is turned upside down in which fascism rules, especially in Europe. And it's just a big, bold book. The kind of storytelling that I love. Um, there are golems, there are heroes, there's love, there's a scene with Salvador Dali, and it's just such a joy to read. It's funny, it's playful, it's absorbing, it's really inventive. Um, it's about comics, which I didn't think I cared about, but I sort of cared about after reading it, but it's also about the power of art, which is always one of my favorite themes, and the immigrant experience. Um, America, another one of my favorite themes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is all making me want to read it again, actually. Yeah, we, it's a great, really went great for, book. We went for like nationalist yeah. choices this week. Okay, we'll be back in a little bit, uh, rejoined by Kevin Barry for our book recommendations. Okay, uh, this is Literary Friction. We are back with Kevin Berry for our monthly book recommendations. Octavia, do you want to start? I do, thank you. Um, I'm going to talk about a book called Hot Milk by Deborah Levy, um, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and I came across it because it was recently uh, BBC Radio 4's book at bedtime, which I, as everyone knows, like to listen to. Um, and I don't even know if I'm recommending it, but I have to talk about it. I kind of loathed it, but it's stuck in my head and I've been thinking about it a lot and I've been thinking about the characters a lot um, and it got me thinking about what makes a successful book you know it doesn't have to be necessarily an enjoyable reading experience but if it leaves you thinking and questioning in some way it's it's doing its job um, and uh, yeah it's I don't know it's a funny old book it's very original in some ways it's unbearably cliched in others uh, it's very brave it's also very very lazy it's very interesting it's also very banal it's kind of this strange piece um, there's a lot of kind of surreal and cinematic stuff going on um, and it's set actually in Spain in Almeria uh, and it's this weird story about these two women one's the mother one's the daughter the daughter's 25 she calls Sophia and her mother has this weird um, paralysis, mysterious paralysis, inconsistent though. Sometimes she can walk and sometimes she can't. And so they, they've gone to this mad, um, what is he? He's like a, he's a doctor, but he's an unusual doctor in the south of Spain who can cure this sort of hysterical disorders, basically. Um, and so it's, it's a story about a mother and a daughter. There's a lot of jellyfish in it. She gets stung a lot. There's a lot of Medusa imagery, which I found a bit hackneyed. She crowbars some French critical theory in there. And yet, I haven't been able to stop thinking about Sophia. Um, so yeah, I, I, she really captures the, the kind of parental, the codependency between kind of millennials and their parents, right? Because the generation that hasn't been able to be free and um, on its own because of its financial situation. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know, pick it up. I basically, I really want someone else to read it so I can have a conversation with someone about it. <laughs> yeah, I like the sound of it. I, I read a first couple of pages of it actually in a bookshop yesterday. Um, a lot of what you're saying there reminds me of the previous one, the Swimming Home book. True, um, yeah. She's, 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 yeah. She's, she's an interesting writer, She's a very she? interesting mm. writer. Um, you can't say you love everything you read, but it's, yeah, um, I, I, I definitely want to give it a go. the books that I like the most are ones that I didn't really like. Yeah, I know, th those are the ones that stay with you often, yeah. aren't they? Mm. Often the ones that you fly through and think, this is wonderful, are just completely sieve through your head very like quickly. Like a piece of cake. It's the thornier ones and the kind of ones you don't know quite what to make of or whether you loved it or not to kind of hang around for a bit mm. do you want to go next Kevin yeah I mean I've, I've the usual thing where there's about 15 books alongside the bed and I kind of drift in and out of all of them the one I'm probably coming back to most at the moment is I think it's the second volume of the collected letters of Samuel Beckett that came out last year um, it's this tremendous feat of scholarship actually to put these these um these books together I think there's going to be three or four ultimately and this is the second one it's really interesting because it covers the, the period of his emergence his, his kind of uh, bewildering emergence into fame in the kind of 50s and, and early 1960s when the plays started to be worldwide um, of worldwide renown and so forth and it's it's great to read Beckett because there's lots of in his letters talking to his friends he had a wide he had a wide um, 
array of friendship around the place. He comes across as an extremely kind person, um, fundamentally, very decent person. Um, his misery and his me melancholy seems at times to be almost his uh, shtick, you know, <laughs> with his friends. Uh, there was a great line I was reading in one of the letters, you know, I, I have another cyst. I was always a great one for a cyst, you know, <laughs> and there's, there's lots of this. And no matter how kind of down you're feeling yourself or how kind of depressed or whatever you are, you can, you can rest assured that Sam is feeling worse. And it's a wonderful thing to go and pick up the books then. Um, he's also ridiculously learned. You know, he, he seems to have, he seems to know every painting, every piece of classical music. He, he, he reads ferociously and he's reading and he watches movies and he loves movies. Um, he, he's, he's, he's a kind of polymath that maybe doesn't exist anymore. But it's, um, I don't know, in my early 20s, I went through the dutiful period um, where I was started looking at Beckett stuff and thinking, yeah, oh, this is great without actually getting very much out of it at all. But when you go back to him, um, here on, on the handsome cusp of middle age um, there's much more you know and there's a kind of a blessed trinity in Irish writing from the 20th century of Joyce and Beckett and Flann O'Brien and when I was younger I always went towards the Flann O'Brien kind of more satirical approach but uh, as I do get older it's, it's um, the Beckett stuff appeals to me more and more and he comes across he, he really comes to life in his letters you know as, a, as actually a very funny man and 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 that kindness really really shines true i think it's funny you say that because i feel in my early 20s i was totally obsessed with beckett and wanted to write about him for my phd and thought he was the towering genius of of the 20th century and sort of fallen out of love with him but maybe yeah. maybe the letters is a way back in i think so yeah and the, it, they've also sent me back not only to reading some of his prose fiction, actually, but also to reading the one of the great literary biographies is James Nolson's biography of Beckett called Damned to Fame, um, which is up there with the Elman books and Joyce, in, in, in my opinion. It's, 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 you know, so well done. It, it, it won't need to be done again, you know, which is the best you can say of a, of a literary biography. Who did he write to the most? Um, a lot were to his, to, to old friends in Dublin, actually. He kept his friends um, there was a guy, the name escapes me, who was at the National Gallery in Ireland, and they had been kind of friends since their early er, early twenties or late teens, even. Um, also, and Con Leventhal, another Dublin friend, so he kept his friends. Um, but had, but had, what's interesting as well is the way he comes across as a very careful manager of his literary career. You know, he knew what he was doing. He did, like he didn't deck himself all over the press or anything like that, or he wasn't on talk shows. But a, behind the scenes you can see in the letters he was very carefully presenting an image and 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 you know and he and he did it did it very well we're still talking about him yeah <laughs> this is true I've, I've heard rumor that the beckett estate has continued that tradition as well yeah they're, the they're beckett quite controlling the, 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 the beckett um, estate there are, there are legendary stories about yeah. the um yeah we'll go no further than that um well my recommendation this month is a recommendation that I already made, but it's a 700-page book, and I'm still reading it, so I'm going to uh, I think do that's an allowed. update. <laughs> um, so it's uh, Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon, which was published a couple years back. It is a nonfiction book about children who are very different from their parents. Uh, and in one of the sort of terrifyingly great things about this book is the spectrum um, which he chooses. So it's not just um, kids with disabilities, uh, kids who are deaf, it's kids who are prodigies, it's um, children who end up committing horrible crimes. Um, wow. He talks to the parents of um, one of the Columbine shooters um, in one of, uh, one of the most sort of touching and terrifying passages of literature I've ever read. And uh, it's just, I, I am, I saw him speak at uh, Jewish Book Week, and it was the reason I bought the book. I'd heard he was a great writer, um, and I'd heard him on the radio a few times, and was very struck by his empathy, um, and even more struck by it now as I, I read the book. Um, he lets people speak for themselves, but it's just infused with this kindness um, for everyone he comes across, the parents, the children, um, people who are dealing with very difficult things, and, um, you know, to, we were talking about sentimentality earlier. I think, um, you know, he gets as close to sentimentality 
mawkish sentimentality as you can without going over the top in that it's really a book about love and joy and uh, not even over, I think overcoming odds is actually the wrong thing to say. It's, it's, it's just about acceptance um, and, and love. And I'm very, I'm very touched and moved by it um, in a way that I'm not often touched and moved by nonfiction. So I'd really recommend it. Um, it it's a big brick to carry around, but it's, it's fabulous. How long do you think it will take you to finish so I can borrow oh it? God, I don't know. I've, <laughs> I've been reading it for about a month already, and I just I keep picking it up and putting it down, which makes me very sad, it sounds, actually. It sounds amazing, and it's news to me. I hadn't heard of it. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd really recommend it. Okay, thank you so much, everyone. So that's it for today's show. Thanks to Kevin Barry, whose novel Beetlebone is really, really worth picking up, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. And uh, also time to remind you that we are available um, as a podcast to download on iTunes, Literary Friction, and on ncs.live. Um, and you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And soon we'll have our own website. Um, and please leave comments and, and interact with us. We would love that. Yes, we would love that. We would love that. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>